Let's go to Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. So, uh, once again, explain to us this whole Border Patrol thing. As far as I can tell, uh, for the sake of getting the funding for Ukraine and Israel, Biden basically uh, caved, hiring more Border Patrol, saying he's going to close the border the moment that he signs this thing, if it passes. Why wouldn't the Republicans just call his bluff on that? Well, I think there's what they're saying, and the real reason. What they're saying is that it doesn't go far enough, that, you know, it still allows too many people to pass the citizenship. It doesn't do enough to, you know, close the border, even though it would do a lot more to close the border than we're doing now. Um, and the real reason, and this is something that Trump has said out loud, is that they don't they want this as an issue. They, they don't want this to be solved. And they don't even if this wouldn't solve it all the way, they don't want to do something that makes it look like Biden is solving it. So they're they're happy to have Biden look helpless on the border. Um, and so they'd rather have a bill go down that leaves the border in a bad shape if it gives them more political ammunition for the fall. But it's all about imaging. This makes Trump look like a wuss. He's basically saying, oh, yeah, let him in so that I can win, supposedly. But why would anybody want to vote for a guy who who thinks that way? Yeah, that's why to me it's kind of amazing the Republicans let this negotiation get this far because they they put themselves in the situation where either they hand Biden a win on the issue Trump was going to run on him again with, or what you said they end up looking like they want the problem and not the solution. I mean, he can now start he can now start counting the number of uh, days that migrants cross the border and say that's on that's on uh, Trump's ledger now because every day that the border is open is because he decided to tell his people to vote this down. You know, it's funny. We had a story back about how, how much of a comparison this election year is to 1948. Uh, and this is a very deep cut in history. But one thing Truman did, Truman started the year in a bad situation, the same with Biden is. And he spent the year railing against the Republican Congress, saying they weren't doing anything to solve the nation's problems. So the Republicans have basically set themselves up for Biden to do that. Obviously, he isn't maybe the campaigner that Harry Truman was. But you're right. They've given him that sort of potent issue on the thing that was supposed to be their issue. Yeah, and even Fox News reports that the, the conservative border union, right, which has been uh, pretty much anti-Biden, looked at this and said, uh, this is great, more Border Patrol agents, we have more uh, authority, uh, pass it. But that still was not uh, persuasive enough. Is it, is, so I, I just want to verify what, what I've been hearing over the past 24 hours. Uh, basically, the threat on Speaker Johnson is if uh, he brings this to the floor, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to try to have him removed. Yeah, I think that would happen. I think Johnson, you know, sees the writing on the wall and, you know, he's already sort of passed a bill in the House that doesn't have any of those border um, provisions in it. So I think he's already sort of saying, look, we're giving up. You know, we're not going to even entertain this in the House. I think he knows what the threat it would be to him and to Trump. Hmm. Okay, so this is this is basically dead. And so the border remains uh, essentially open because that's what Trump wants. Is that a true statement? I mean, it's more complicated. You know, it got to be this bad for a variety of reasons, some of which are Biden's fault. But after this, you're right. I think Biden can say, look, I tried to fix it. I want to fix it. And they won't let me because they want the problem. You know, whether he's politically good enough to make that into a winning issue, I don't know. But like he definitely has that to, to, to use now. OK, the Supreme Court, as I understand, is about to hear arguments on the 14th Amendment case. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. Okay, so we can uh, actually tune into that, I believe, because they broadcast the uh, the audio live. But what are the what are the big issues here? What what does the Supreme Court have to decide exactly? Well, we're talking about the issue where Colorado and Maine said that Trump could not be on the ballot in their states because he's engaged in quote insurrection, Fourteenth mm-hmm. Amendment, written after the Civil War. So that if you engage in insurrection against the United States, you couldn't hold a federal office. So we're obviously counting January 6th. So those states counted January 6th as an insurrection. 
So I think there'll be two issues. One is whether January 6th is an insurrection. Mm-hmm. And do you count that in the same way that the Civil War, if people who had just finished the Civil War would have thought of an insurrection, but also, you know, the sort of more logistical things. If Congress, if there was really a need to disqualify people, why didn't Congress pass a law saying, here's what insurrection means, here's how this process works? I just can't see the Republican-dominated Supreme Court wanting to kick Trump off the ballot and to insert themselves that directly into an election. So I think they're looking for a way to, to undo this and put Trump on the ballot in those states uh, without seeming like they're rooting for Trump. So I, I, I do look for them to find some kind of legalistic way to let Trump on the ballot. Yeah, I can't imagine that they would do that either. But at the same time, uh, qualifications of candidates are up to the states, as I understand it. Will will the Supreme Court, I mean, so if they basically punt, then, then what do states do? Do they have to, does that overrule any states whose process does allow this kind of, um, this kind of move to take place? I, I don't know. It's a good question. Like, it's never been used before, and I, I do think they will say that you can't use it now to disqualify Trump. Mm-hmm. Will they come out and say, here's what we think insurrection means, here's the test you should use in the future? I don't know. That may be too ambitious for them. Well, would they limit it simply to questions of insurrection or to the state's power to disqualify on any grounds? Because, I mean, states would routinely qualify, disqualify a candidate who you know was 25 years old and wanted to run for president right. or who wasn't born here. But there's no formal mechanism for that as far as i know except the secretary of state says oh, obviously you weren't born here you can't run too bad i think what will happen is that they will say that this specific provision you know this provision of the 14th amendment there was no enabling legislation that's what they call the bills congress would have to pass to explain how it, you know exactly how the disqualification would work but so that it's that, that the loss of states power to make their own decisions is limited to this case yeah. All right. On the uh, various Trump cases, I don't know how you how you keep up on all these. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's David, so many. You get, well, I'm, I'm just taking the criminal ones. So you've got the hush money case, the classified documents case, the election interference case involving the D.C. insurrection and the uh, Fulton Ca- County case. Um, by the way, any updates on that and the uh, uh, Fannie Willis's uh, personal problems there? When does that get decided? Well, she came out in an affidavit last week and said that, yes, she is having an affair with the guy who is the, the lead prosecutor, basically her top deputy in that case, but that it started after she'd already picked him for that job and it hadn't interfered with, you know, basically it, it was a personal matter and it had not interfered with her prosecution of that case and shouldn't taint the case against Trump. And uh, now a judge has to hear that and decide if that's right or if there should be some, she should be thrown off the case. Um, it, I mean, the legal experts I was reading said that they didn't think that this would sort of be the death knell for that case if she can prove that all that is true. Uh, but certainly it's been a setback to her prosecution and to the moral authority she was bringing to that case. David Farenthold from the New York Times. David, thank you very much. Thank you. Choke points. Let's go. Getting between Marysville and Everett is not going to be easy for most of the year. Construction on the bridges along Highway 529 is going to cause some big disruptions. And Chris is here to explain just how bad it'll get. It's going to get a little bad. Uh, It's going to be difficult. Work to repair the 97-year-old bridge over Steamboat Slough was supposed to start last month. That's one of the many bridges there along 529 between Everett and Marysville. But bad weather and some contractor issues have put the project on hold for a week, a couple of weeks. But when it starts, it is going to close southbound 529 over the Steamboat Slough Bridge for three full weekends. The Washington Department of Transportation's Tom Pierce says the speed limit has already been reduced on this bridge for months to keep the worn out parts from getting worse. We've been watching it in the last couple of years and there are some steel plates that connect beams that have gotten to the point where we now need to replace them. 
these plates are part of the original bridge, so they've held up really well. But uh, after 97 years, it, it's time to replace them. During these three upcoming weekend closures, Pierce says there really aren't many detour options. People who are going from Marysville to Everett, they're just going to need to use I-5 with this southbound roadway closed. People who are going northbound, of course, they can use it. They can still reach all of the points on the island. We should be getting an updated schedule this week for when that work will begin. Pierce says it will take some really bad weather to postpone it. The last postponement came during the ice snap that we had a couple weeks ago. The work that we're doing is only somewhat weather dependent. It's really more about safety. If it's going to be really icy or there's going to be high winds, that wouldn't be safe work conditions. And so we'd have to postpone. If it's going to rain, then the crews have rain gear and, and they'll be out there in the rain. Three full weekend closures of 529 over Steamboat Slough. Just the appetizer for work on the corridor this year because the bridge over the Snohomish River in Everett, the bigger bridge, is going to be shut down for months. We're going to have to close the northbound SR 529 Snohomish River Bridge for four months. That's because of all the work that they have to do on the gears and some of the guts and some of the other things that are a part of that bridge. Now, the bridge is going to stay in the open position throughout the closure to make sure that boats can get through, but this is going to be a major pain for drivers. Pierce says the contractor will be creating two crossovers on either end of the bridge to get traffic around this. So northbound drivers will be forced into the southbound lanes and they will go over the bridge with only one lane open in each direction. The crossover on the south side of the bridge, of course, will be up in Everett. And then um, just after you get across the Snohomish River Bridge where things flatten out, then we'll put the other crossover in. The on-ramp from Marine View Drive is also going to be closed. So if drivers up on the north end you know, want to go north, they're going to have to drive south into Everett, do a UE, catch that crossover if they want to head across the bridge. Uh, but that's not it for 529. There are going to be multiple lane closures and full closures on all of the bridges throughout the year and it's going to go into 2025 until they're finished with their work there. Wow. I want to go on the record and just say publicly that I am in favor of fixing up bridges every 97 years whether they need it or not. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, they built the original bridges the you know 97 years ago and then they only they took both directions of traffic then they built new bridges right next to them right. to handle the opposites to double the capacity but yeah they they 97 year old bridges kind of uh, they need some TLC definitely considering they're opening and closing for boat traffic uh, and whatnot and the you know the conditions the corrosive conditions that we have with the weather so yeah I, I think most people can get down with that Dave every 97 years a little work done yeah, yeah. I think we should proactively build not just a second bridge but a third bridge for when repairs have to be done like this. And I still think, I mean, wouldn't it be just a, a great exercise for the Army Corps of Engineers to, you know, be called out to put in like one of their overnight bridges uh, just to show they can do it and also to carry some traffic? You know, maybe get the CBs some... Uh, That's what I'm thinking. You know, some, some practice there. Uh, maybe. I mean, again, because there's so much water in that area, different places, sloughs to go across. And this, by the way, is also all part of the new interchange that they're building there at 529 in South Marysville that will take people, allow people to get on and off the freeway directly to 529 and will get you into Marysville on the other side of the railroad tracks so you don't have to get stuck behind a train when you're just trying to get off the freeway. Yeah. And then you could start handling the uh, some of the exposed rebar on the uh, I-90 crossing over the Mercer Slough. Which, 
which yeah. would also make me feel a little more, more secure yeah, as I I'm, drive there. I'm with you. By the way, I still don't have an update on when they're going to restripe that area where we have that expansion joint is load restricted there on the yeah. East Channel Bridge. They were supposed they're going to do it sometime this month to get us at least four lanes back. But yeah, that fix isn't going to be done until next year. Mm. I, don't, I don't go there anymore. The East East Channel Bridge is now dead to me. I just go around. <laughs> Around the other side. Well, you could take your yacht uh, to Kirkland to your moorage there, correct? Can't you? Or the helicopter you have to Bellevue? Do you know something I don't? (laughs) This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. In case you haven't heard, World Cup soccer is coming to Seattle in 2026, and the head of the Seattle Organizing Committee is Peter Tamazawa, who is uh, with the uh, Sounders, runs their business operations. So, uh, tell me how big a deal this is, Peter. Oh, this is massive deal. Uh, we just got the match schedule yesterday and, uh, we couldn't be more delighted. We got six matches in Seattle in 2026, four group stage, uh, two knockout stage matches. The kind of rough back of the envelope calculation on the audience size is, uh, we'll have two billion people viewing uh, Seattle and all the things that Washington bad. has. Yeah, two billion isn't too bad. Um, but but most importantly, uh, we got the U.S. men's national team uh, in, in one of the group stages. It's pivotal game two of the group stage. Um, you know, the U.S. men's national team is eight one in one in Seattle. I don't know if you knew that, uh, and we're excited. They're excited. Everyone's excited. What happens when you know deal. the World <laughs> Cup is coming to Seattle? Is there going to be infrastructure built? How do we accommodate the people flooding in to view the games? And most of all, where are the games being played? So they're going to be played in, in the stadium where we play our Sounders matches. Um, and, you know, we've done this before. We've sold out uh, Lumen Field numbers of times. MLS Cup uh, was my first year as president of the Sounders in 2019. And then, you know, we did it again when we won Champions League uh, in 2022. So it's uh, it's something we've done before in terms of the stadium and people coming in. I kind of liken the impact and effect of the kind of numbers we can expect visitor-wise is just think about the Taylor Swift concert last year. Yeah, I was year. thinking about that. Uh, wow. <laughs> and But just think of that uh, six times bigger and all across our state. Wow. <laughs> So this is like, yeah. I read one figure, something like $100 million in business just here locally? Oh, I think that's horribly low. Uh, I mean, we're going to have almost 400,000 people attending the games. Uh, rough estimate, somewhere between 750,000 people visiting our region. Um, if it's $100 million, that's like, what, $135 a head? I think they're going to spend a lot more than $135. Um I we're going to do a full on economic analysis. We owe this. We owe ourselves that. But gosh, if if we're not double to three times that, I'd be shocked. This region has some great soccer fans, no doubt. That's why the Sounders and the women's team, of course, the Rain, yeah. huge supporters. How how can you jump in if you're somebody who's never seen a match or if you want to experience the World Cup for the first time? Well, you know, a great way to start is go to a rain game, go to a sounder match and start getting the feeling of it. Um, Greg Berhalter, who's the coach of the men's national team, 
uh, was on the reveal show yesterday saying what a great opportunity for the men's national team to come play in the world cup in Seattle. And he referenced our March to the match, which is a unique experience. Uh, no other city has actually, it was started by Drew Carey and Adrian Hanauer as a tradition. We marched to the match and he said, let's march to the match together and get another W. Um, I would say that's the best way to get started is watch us play, watch us um, and you'll see why the world is so enthralled with the, with the, with the game. But more than anything else, if you've never been to a World Cup, just come down to Seattle. Come down to one of our watch parties. We're going to have nine watch parties across the state outside of Seattle. And just enjoy the atmosphere. Because one of the things that we try to strive for is, you know, we're trying to leave a lasting legacy based on the spirit of soccer, inclusion, and innovation. All right. Peter Tomazawa, who's coordinating the 2026 World Cup competition here in Seattle. Uh, congratulations on, on snagging this event and good luck. Thank you very much and appreciate your time. Time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Teachers at a middle school near Detroit wrote letters of thanks to their students before they moved on to higher grades. Now those same students are returning the favor. And NBC News met up with the group as the letters were handed out. I haven't seen you in so long. <laughs> when I needed extra help, you were the teacher that helped me. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, honey. How are you? You taught me so much stuff about middle school, and you were right. It gets hard sometimes. <laughs> middle school can be hard. Olivia Collins had teacher Janice Lintz for kindergarten. Without you, I wouldn't be where I am now. Me and my siblings are all very appreciative of you. Oh, Thank you. The group? More than 50, all giving handwritten letters. I was happy to be your student, and I'm still to this day grateful for having a teacher like you. You are the reason I wake up with a smile on my face. Sincerely, Asher. Oh, honey, that is so sweet. Thank you. Can I give you a hug? Oh, thank you. It's just made my whole day. Hug after hug. It's a meaningful lesson in the power of gratitude. Second grade teacher Jen Sakala has been an educator for more than 30 years. This is a hard, difficult job. You put a lot of time, effort, emotions into it. And when somebody appreciates it, it feels good. It's these precious moments that coaching and reading teacher Stacy Earl hopes students and staff will remember forever. Probably the bigger message that I would like everybody to understand or know that you can change a person's life with a small use of words. It's very simple. Thank you so much. <laughs> I remember one year my resolution was to write a handwritten letter once a week mm-hmm. and it's difficult to do. It really is, but it feels good when you send it out. Yeah. And uh, teachers, that are, even teachers who don't get letters have to know. I mean, I still remember most of my teachers. Do yeah. And I, I think uh, most kids do. It's it's important. Yeah. Now, from the Gene Ursula Show, here he is, G. Scott, an expert on a lot of things and also our go-to guy when it comes to delivery service issues. So um, the Seattle City Council has passed an ordinance which is supposed to make it easier for DoorDash drivers and other delivery services to make a decent living. Okay. What do you think about it? Told y'all. I told y'all before. (laughs) I got on here and we were talking about when Seattle City Council was bringing this up. This is what they wanted to do. 
Mm-hmm. And they would say, wait, G, no, 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 you got to understand, this is going to be a guaranteed salary. That way, the DoorDash delivery folks are going to be getting $26 an hour. And I got on there and I told you, no, don't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a such thing as fool's gold. This is what that was. Now they have applied that, and what, they, what did they do? They automatically deferred that cost to the customer, right? Having them pay an extra $5 fee right there. So number one. Number two, one of the things, and this is what I was trying to ask you, David, and this is one of the things that I've, I've noticed over the last couple weeks on DoorDash. If you guys have ordered recently, have you noticed that the default tip has lowered Hmm. The default tip amount has gone down. As a matter of fact, I go to pay, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? They just gave me an option to for $2? Yeah. An option for $1.50? So I, like, no. So I go up. The reason why I'm bringing that up, when you put the default that way, and they, people see the numbers, and they'll see, oh, the highest is $3? Okay, boom, here's $3. Can I feel you explain, good. What did the city change exactly? <clears throat> what they did, what they changed was, is they changed it for, number one, the people have a $5 fee. We, the consumer, have a $5 fee to, a fee to offset this, one. Mm-hmm. Two, the drivers now, what they do is, is for their time and how long they're out there, they're going to get a guaranteed minimum of the $26 an hour. Or if they get more tips, they can get more than that. Yeah. But it's going to be tough. But what's happened is, is they're not getting all of those hours like they thought they'd be. So you might only get four hours, right? You can't, you might not get eight hours. So some of the people out there that were probably making, you know, $900 a week sometimes, some of these folks have gone down to like 450 because 500 aren't, aren't using the service as much? Is because, it? because people aren't because using those services as much. Because of the fee. Absolutely. When you, okay. when you get ready to make a budget, and you're budgeting things, you're writing down things. Hey, honey, this is what we need to cut. <laughs> the first thing to go. The, one of the first things that needs to go is, eating hey, out. we need to slow down on our eating out. Mm-hmm. First thing to go is your is the delivery stuff. Now, let's go back to when I was talking about this before. This is a service where the reason why I love to do DoorDash so much is because I love the hustle of it. I love the, man, I'm going to go, 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 right? I felt that I would get rewarded for it. So for those listening right now, you're probably that way too. But what I don't want is this. I don't want me to go, 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 go. And meanwhile, I got this other person that's like, I'm just going to go when I want to go, getting paid just as much as me because they are just going by the hour. Mm -hmm. So this enables people who want to phone it in. Absolutely. That's that's my thing. So the thing and is, you warned about this. I, well, this is what I warned about. I knew that there was going to be something that comes up that makes it to where, oh, we wish we would have gone and kept it the way that it was. Now you have this fee. Now, one last point I want to make on this. Let's talk about people that are on fixed incomes. Let's talk about people who don't, they, they love these delivery services because it's easier for them. Sometimes the kids of loved ones can send their parents money so they can have an allowance to have that food come. Now when you bring that extra fee on there, sometimes it might be a little bit expensive for those that are on fixed incomes. Again, is there anything in Seattle that is not high? 
Is there anything that's not expensive? Everything we do, we talk about it in increased costs here in this city. You can't live here. Yeah. You know what would help? Is if companies would just pay a living wage. <laughs> they wouldn't have to add a fee, add this, add the tip. Like, I'm so tired of everything being piecemeal to make a livable wage. Just pay your workers. You mean... You mean to tell me, like, sometimes when you're in a restaurant and you go to a restaurant and you get your bill at the very end and you see that added fee that's already in, in there? And, you, and you're wondering why, like, okay, wait, one thing, it was a gratuity. That's one thing. But you, now you're going to put an automatic yeah. thing here? Yeah. So you're just, saying this is backfired. I, this is backfired. Okay. And, and, and by the way, I would love for anybody that does DoorDash or Uber Eats to text into the show right now. And you guys tell me if I'm wrong. 888-973-5476. I want to know if you're making more money. The Muckleshoot Casino Resort text line. Thank you, G. I'm sure we'll hear more about that uh, after 9 o'clock on the Gene Ursley Show. This is Seattle's Morning News. And now for a look at the current legislative session where a bill expanding the use of traffic safety cameras includes a 75% discount for some violators. What's this? Uh, and the graffiti bill. Let's go to Matt Markovich for the update. Good morning, Matt. Yeah, good morning, Dave. This is why I do what I do. I have to listen through all these hearings that happen and find these nuggets. I'm going, what? Yes. I scratch my head, and this is one of those. Now, House Democrats, we have a lot to cover today. This is all in Sully's backyard. House Democrats yesterday have made substantial changes to House Bill 2384, expanding the use of automated safety cameras, and those are including those red light cameras that we've known and love. The bill was originally introduced to authorize the deployment of traffic cameras for detecting speed violations on state routes within city limits. It drops the size of a city, the size of a population of, for a city that can do that to 10,000 people or more. Now, the original version also aimed at making permanent a pilot program allowing the traffic cameras to catch violations of uh, walking in intersections or crosswalk, obstructing traffic, uh, traveling in restricted lanes. <clears throat> However, this is the key part. The substitute amendment approved by the House Transportation Committee yesterday added several controversial elements, including that reduced penalties for low-income violators. Mm-hmm. The Transportation Committee voted 19 to 10, all Republicans against the bill. And so that substitute bill passes, the uh, has a couple elements. It has the adoption of an online ability-to-pay calculator where cities and counties can process requests for reduction in fines related to traffic camera violations. And more importantly, it would mandate that uh, a 75% reduction in the penalty for like a red car, a red light violation to registered owners of vehicles who are receiving state public assistance if they request that penalty reduction. Hmm. Now, currently, only a judge has the authority to reduce a violator's penalty. Senator Andrew Barkas, a Republican from Olympia, is the ranking Republican on that committee. There are still concerns how penalties are calculated, different percentages on who is committing the infractions. Now, Senator Brandy Donaghy proposed the substitute bill, but did not address those new additions, including the reduction in penalties in her comments just before the committee convened in an executive session and voted on the bill. And this is an important point because... Because changes that are made after an initial public hearing on the bill, by rule, there's no public input allowed during the committee's executive session. Uh, so it was such a last-minute change, no public input, 
very little notice, and it and it passed. Now, other substantial changes in that bill regard who issues a citation. Now, currently, just commissioned law enforcement officers are authorized to issue citations after they look at the camera video. The committee approved the authorization for non-commissioned officers and designated public employees to review the infractions and issue notices of infraction uh, as long as it doesn't impede the collective bargaining rights under the current law. So the substitute bill allows for training of these non-commissioned officers and regular public employees of a city uh, to write and uh, write the tickets and issue the tickets. And that's mm-hmm. some of the changes here. Okay. Graffiti, what about that? Now, the graffiti, um, the House, same committee, approved a Republican-led substitute that allows the state DOK cameras to catch graffiti violators. Substitute Bill 1989 presents a more tech-savvy approach to combating vandalism, and it introduces advanced spray drone technology and improved identification systems. Now, if passed into law, the pilot program would empower WashDOT to utilize the cameras, except those that are involved in tolling and work safety zone enforcement, to identify people uh, responsible for graffiti damage. And this is more importantly, it, it Additionally, the bill directs Washdot to collaborate with other entities to pursue legal action against repeat violators. Um, the House Transportation Committee passed this Republican-led bill 27 to 2. Representative Dave Paul from Oak Harbor, a Democrat, is the vice chair of the committee. When you drive up and down the highway, there's hardly any blank spaces. Um, and it shouldn't have to be our wildest dreams to have clean highways. So bipartisan support for this. Yes. Um, One of the key modifications, this is interesting, is the inclusion of field testing for a spray drone technology designed to efficiently cover up the existing graffiti. Now, this technology, these spray drones are paint drones. They're Mm -hmm. used to make legal graffitis like, like against walls. Uh, it, a lot of artists use these drones. They program it to mm-hmm. put a design on a wall. They want to use the same drones to cover up illegal graffiti. Sounds like a great idea to me. Yeah. Now, under the Vice Bill, the, the, they have to do these tests. It's a pilot program. Mm-hmm. So they're going to do a test between I-5, on along I-5 between Tacoma and Seattle and along I-90 in the North Spokane Corridor. Now it moves to the Rules Committee and up could go to a full House vote. All right, some progress there. Okay, what about the uh, tire issue? And these yeah, new, uh, now this is uh, the one I said is close to Sully's heart because uh, he did a story about House Bill 2262. Well, this is about... Um, you know the sale the preventing the sale of cheap tires because they don't have good rolling resistance they're not economically and environmentally frame, uh, friendly uh so yesterday on the house in that same committee 602262 died it didn't go anywhere but on the Senate side, the Democratic chair, Marco Elias, of the Senate Transportation, basically rewrote his own bill, but it has his bill's all about electric vehicles. He called it implementing certain recommendations for the transportation electrification strategy. That's the name of the bill. But there's all these new things that involve gas vehicle cars, including tires. Uh, he included the House version of the tire bill in his bill involving electric cars. And here's what he had to say about it. The Department of Commerce tells us that the average Washingtonian could save as much as $770 in gas with with more efficient tires that uh, use up less fuel on our roadways while also reducing emissions for our state. 
Now, it also modifies the enforcement and penalties for unlawful idling of commercial vehicles and allows police and air pollution control authorities to issue penalties for idling violations. Now, here's what the ranking Republicans, Curtis King, had to say about everything. This bill just gives us all kinds of opportunity to talk about what we don't like about it. Let's start with uh, specialty tires, and these tires are more costly. They have a shorter lifespan. Uh, they don't function well on snow or ice, and it's uh, something that we should not be considering. And Chris wants to jump in here. Okay, Matt, Matt yeah. question for you again. Procedural, this may be boring to some people, but how does Marco Leas create a bill out of whole cloth in executive session that didn't actually exist in his committee? This was in the House where they only had a hearing. So can you just make up a bill out of whole cloth and not have a public hearing on it in executive Matt. session in the opposite House chamber? The short answer is Yes. Is that legal? What's I mean, is that legal? That that doesn't sound right. It's a brand new bill. Well, it's called a substitute, Chris. And but so, there wasn't a bill in the front end, right? In the Senate? It was yo, only there, heard there in was the a, House. No, there was a huge bill. It had deals a lot on his bill. It deals a lot with electric vehicles. But then he slid in all Ugh. these other elements. And that's kind of what Congress does. Ugh. Dave, you know that. They, mm-hmm. You have one uh, uh, bill about one thing, <sighs> and then you try and add on other things on it and see if you can get, get, get it passed. And that's what's happening right now in the legislature. A lot, with a lot of bills, they're making these substitute motions with a lot of new stuff. There's no public hearing, and it go, eventually may go straight to the House or Senate floor. Kyrie News Radio's Matt Markovich. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.